Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Heather, and I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester, and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com tours. Thanks so much. And now to the show. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. Since Shakespeare's birthday is coming up in April, I'm going to start doing a few episodes this month and next on that great Elizabethan institution, the theater. The theater. This episode will be on the history of Elizabethan theater in general. And then the next episode will be on Shakespeare specifically. And I also want to do some honorable mentions for like Marlowe and Kidd and, you know, some of the other playwrights who aren't Shakespeare, who get overlooked sometimes. But before I start, a few reminders. First, I'm so happy to announce that I'm going to start working in partnership with the good people at Tudor Times, which is tutortimes.co.uk. And I'm going to be creating some original podcasts with them. You will have noticed that last month I interviewed Melita Thomas on Lady Margaret Beaufort, and you will see more content like that coming jointly between us. And they are an incredibly well-researched site, a repository of all things Tudor and Stuart. So please check them out. Also, I have a book coming out on April 15th. It's a book. It's my book. It's a novel. It's called Sideways and Backwards, a novel of time travel and self-discovery. And it's about a contemporary woman who lives in London, and she accidentally travels to Cambridge circa 1539. So there's 
you know, time travel involved. And she has to try and figure out how to get back, if she can get back and figure out how she wound up there. Anyway, it's very, it's, it's sort of like chiclet, beach read mixed with historical fiction, mixed with sci-fi time travel. Anyway, it's my first novel and I'm so, so, so excited about it. And the ebook version is only, only $2.99. And here's the deal. If you pre-order it before April 15th, when it's released, you will also receive a free copy of the audiobook narrated by yours truly. So it's like a deal, right? You get, you pay $2.99 for the ebook and you get the audiobook from me for free. So I would love it if you would check it out and, you know, buy it, pre-order it especially. And you can go to www.sidewaysandbackwardsbook.com or you can follow the link from the EnglandCast site at englandcast.com. And also, I have a really great giveaway going on right now, a Tudor historical fiction book bundle with five paperbacks. There's romance, there's mystery. It's a really great collection. So you can enter to win, like I said, Tudor historical fiction. There's Philippa Gregory, but there's also C.J. Sampson. There's the Matthew Shardlake novel. If you haven't gotten into Matthew Shardlake, I highly recommend it. So head on over to englandcast.com and enter the contest for the Tudor book bundle. And finally, finally, I promise finally, this podcast is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. And the Agora Podcast of the Month is pretty famous. It barely needs an introduction because I'm really positive that if you listen to my podcast, you totally listen to this podcast already. But here we go anyway, in case you haven't discovered this podcast. It's the History of England by David Crowther. And he's just now getting through the Wars of the Roses and he'll be into the Renaissance period soon. So it's a great time to start listening to him if you haven't already. But as I said, I'm sure most of you have. So with all of that said, Let's start our talk on the Elizabethan theater, shall we? The Elizabethan theater, like so much of the uniqueness of Elizabethan culture, like the music, like I've talked about, stems from the Protestant Reformation. And it's kind of ironic that it was the same Protestant Reformation that helped to form the Elizabethan theater that would wind up sort of being the end of it bringing it down after the Puritans took power during the English Civil War. So the Puritans were kind of the Protestants way far the other direction and like far the other direction from Catholics. And um, they saw anything linked to the theater, not just as sinful, but also as being part of this Catholic past, uh, which I'm going to talk about. And so they wound up ending the theater when they took power during the English Civil War. But that is a story that is beyond our time period. And while I think it's very interesting, I don't know enough about the English Civil War to be able to talk about it. So we'll leave others to talk about that. The first commercial theater in England wasn't built until 1567. But plays had been watched and enjoyed for centuries. These plays were mystery plays, and they told the stories of the Bible and also the lives of saints. So how it would work is that groups of actors would travel around the countryside and they would act out the stories in the Bible. And since these plays were so closely linked to the church calendar, to feast days and to holidays, they would be performed to coincide with those feast days. And so they were really seen as 
you know, religious sorts of institutions, ways to get people introduced to scripture that might not understand what was going on in church, or it's just another way of getting the story out there. So these plays would work with the, the troop of actors would show up in a town, they would have a decorated wagon, and sometimes they would get out and they would sometimes reenact the entire Bible in a single day. In the morning, they would start with the creation, and then they would end with the last judgment at night. And these were like huge occasions, right? These villages and towns that were out in the middle of nowhere that would that would see these troops showing up from time to time. It was a huge occasion. It was a big festival atmosphere, um, lots of pageantry. And it was just this this whole festival that would spring up around them. People would be selling things. There would be vendors selling foods, little impromptu markets, all of the sort of traveling or all of the sort of um, trappings of a festival. But all of that ended when Henry VIII split from Rome and established the Church of England because these plays were so linked to the Catholic feast days. And the reformers as they were working on dissolving the monasteries and getting rid of all of the trappings of Rome, they identified these plays, these mystery plays, as one of the corruptions of the Roman Catholic religion. And some of the Protestants, the way extreme ones, like I talked about the Puritans eventually would become, they wanted to get rid of the plays completely. And these mystery plays were suppressed during the Elizabethan period throughout England, Though, interestingly, they still remained popular in some really remote places, especially in Cornwall. And in part, this was because they were performed in Cornish and they were more difficult to police, right? It was harder to for the censors to understand what was going on because it wasn't in English. And there had always been a secular side of pageants as well. So chronicles record monarchs entering London, you know, when queens would enter and they would go on this parade through the city. And every couple hundred yards, they would stop and there would be pageants that would all sort of talk about a particular theme, the monarch being chosen by God or the queen who was going to come and be a peacemaker or whatever the particular theme was, there would be these pageants. But these events were so rare. They weren't really any kind of full-time employment for actors. They didn't require any kind of regularity or they didn't have any kind of regularity to them. And they, they weren't available to common people on a regular basis. So with mystery plays going away, there was a gap in the market, as it were. People still wanted plays and the festivity that went along with them, but they couldn't be religious any longer. So that left room for people like Marlowe and Shakespeare and others to come in and fill this need with comedies and tragedies and histories. And also a new group of actors was needed to perform these sorts of plays. So they would travel around the countryside, just like the mystery plays people would, and they would put on plays wherever they could. They would put on plays in places like public squares, churches, taverns, all the way up to private homes of lords and noblemen. Early playwrights like John Bale wrote history plays that would dramatize England's past, and they weren't so tied to the church calendar. And often the plays would be performed at inns because inns had balconies that would overlook the inn yard. And this became part of the setup of the plays and the idea of a, the, this balcony or stage would be incorporated into the playhouses as they developed.
So a note about Shakespeare, and I'll talk about obviously him more in the episode that is devoted to him, but it's interesting. He was born in 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon, and there were at least 30 visits by touring theater companies between 1568 and 1597. So it's really likely that this would have been his first exposure to the world of drama and plays. And another potential early influence, which also demonstrates the sort of pageantry side of of plays at this time, was Elizabeth I's visit to Kenilworth in 1575. Elizabeth loved the theater and she loved, you know, all the kind of trappings of theater and music and the pageantry of it all. And that's one of the reasons why it survived as long as it did, despite the protests of of the people in London, of the Puritans. But in 1575, she went to visit the Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley at Kenilworth, where he made a last ditch effort to win her heart and have her agree to marry him. And it's this very famous sort of two and a half weeks she spent there where he put on several lots and lots of pageants, including a mechanical fish that emerged from a lake with a group of musicians inside and fireworks and plays all the time. And Kenilworth was near Stratford. So it was very, very possible that Shakespeare would have had an opportunity as a young boy to visit this festival that sprang up and witness some of these pageants. So Elizabeth welcomed the plays and she loved the theater, but not all towns were as welcoming. People were worried about the spread of disease and plague and also the crowds that would gather and could become unruly. So some town, so some towns would actually pay these playing companies to leave before they even had a chance to perform. But some were lucky and would become employed by noblemen like the Earl of Leicester's men. And they would show up in a town and they would show this proclamation that they were employed by such and such. And that would give them a certain kind of recognition, like a good housekeeping seal of approval. And also the authorities wouldn't want to anger those noblemen by turning away uh, their players. And so they could still perform. But in 1559, a royal proclamation decreed that all plays needed to be licensed for performance. And then in 1572, another act served to restrict the way these touring players could move. It labeled any players without a noble patron as vagabonds who were to be, quote, grievously whipped and burned through the gristle of the right ear with a hot iron of the compass about an inch about. That sounds really terrible. Uh, this was in part linked to the crackdown on Catholics that I've talked about here for a few months since doing the, the episode on Catholics and then with Mary Queen of Scots. So there were very few groups of people who could easily move around the country anonymously. And actors, players, had been one of these groups. And as such, they had the potential to be sort of fronts for Jesuit priests or any others who wanted to hatch a plan to overthrow Elizabeth. So not only were the players themselves, could they be seen as suspect, but the idea of these large audiences where people could gather and talk um, 
without being heard because there were so many people around and you know lots of noise so you could have these kinds of conversations or start to spread sedition that was seen as as a security threat elizabeth granted the first royal patent for actors to the servants of the earl of leicester in 1574 and these servants were james burbage and four partners They were given the right to play comedies, tragedies, interludes, stage plays, and other such like in London and in all other towns and boroughs in the realm of England, except that no plays could be performed during the time for common prayer or during a time of great and common plague in our said city of London. Under Elizabeth, political and religious subjects were also forbidden on the stage, though people would bring them up, obviously. Shakespeare was famous for having his history plays also reflect what was going on at the time period as well. So you just had to be clever about it. So despite all of these sorts of um, constraints, plays were still growing in popularity at At any given year in London, by the 1590s or so, over 10% of the population would see a play. In 1567, like I said, the first purpose-built playhouse was built. That was called the Red Lion, and it was in Whitechapel. It was built by a grocer who put up scaffolding in the grounds of a farmhouse, and it would host troops of actors as they passed through. And it didn't succeed in part because of its remote location. But between 1575 and 1578, nine more dedicated playhouses were built, including the famous theater in Shoreditch. They were all on the outskirts in the suburbs of the city. This meant that they were outside the control of the authorities and the laws that restricted large congregations, in part, like I said, because of security and also due to the fears about the plague. Their location made them neighbors with bear baiting rings and brothels. So they were kind of seen as sorts of seedy sort of places. But while the authorities kept trying to outlaw theater and and make things more difficult, the plays kept growing in popularity. In 1578, six companies were granted permission by special order of the Queen to perform plays. They were the Children of the Chapel Royal, Children of St. Paul's, the Servants of the Lord Chamberlain, Servants of the Lords Warwick, Leicester, and Essex. The building of the playhouses had already really begun in the mid-1570s, and there was a poem at the time that was really popular that said, List unto my ditty, alas, the more's the pity. From Troy and Event's old city, the aldermen and mayor have driven each poor player. So they were banished from the city by the aldermen and mayor. This banishment to places outside the city actually helped the theater grow. So there was room for as many theaters as people demanded without having to worry about building around in a crowded city. You know, it's like urban sprawl or suburban sprawl. People could just keep building and building all around. And they were close enough, like just across the river in Southwark, and people could easily still get to them, but they weren't within the city boundaries and there was still more space. And because of all of this growth, there was this healthy rivalry between the players and between the playwrights at the time. All the theaters had certain things in common. They were all three stories tall. They were pretty much a circle. They had an open space in the center. And into this open space, the stage extended. 
that meant that three sides of the stage were open to view by the audience, kind of like a fashion runway or something. And only the rear was used for entrances and exits. There were no roofs and plays were performed during the day. So you didn't need to have lights. And the first theater with a roof was the Blackfriars Theater. And it was also one of the first to use artificial lighting during productions because it had a roof. And for for the average person, the cost to see a play in London would be as little as a penny. So it was really affordable for people to be able to go and get a cheap seat and enjoy this bit of entertainment. The era of Elizabethan theater officially begins, according to historians, with Gorboduc, a play about civil war and succession to the throne of a kingdom. It was written by both Thomas Norton and Thomas Sackville. It's famous for being the first play written in blank verse, which uses unrhymed iambic pentameter. The way it's written it flows, it makes it sound very musical, makes it easier for the actors to remember, and also just sounds beautiful. And playwrights like Marlowe and Shakespeare also used iambic pentameter in their poetry. Three main genres dominated the Elizabethan stage. And like I said before, they were comedy and tragedy and history. I read that these can be sort of facetiously categorized as plays where everybody gets married in the end, everybody dies in the end, or everybody already knows how it ends, respectively. So comedies include some of Shakespeare's plays like A Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado About Nothing. Ben Jonson wrote Every Man in His Humor. And there was later a sort of subgenre called city comedy, that focus specifically on life in London, on the hilarity of life in the big city. And so that was another popular form of plays. Tragedies didn't end badly just kind of for random reasons. They always ended badly due to a character's flaws and choices. So they also offered moral lessons to people. And historical plays focused on periods of English history, generally. So there was Edward II by Marlowe, Richard III by Shakespeare, that were some of the more famous ones. And they were always things where the events had happened decades or centuries before. So they weren't necessarily referring to political themes of the time. So the censors would pass them, but they would be allegorical, they would have metaphors for what was going on at the time period as well, if you cared to read deeply into them, which now historians do all the time. So they also would serve to stir up patriotism at a time of war, like Shakespeare's plays that told of glorious military campaigns against the French at the same time as there were big campaigns in Ireland going on, for example. So they could be used to kind of drum up the patriotic fever at the same time. And of course, everybody knows the name William Shakespeare, but he wasn't the only famous playwright of this period. There was also people like Christopher Marlowe, Ben Jonson, John Webster, Thomas Kidd, Thomas Middleton, and Thomas Haywood. They were all really popular writers at the time as well. Marlowe, in fact, died young in a bar brawl. He was stabbed to death. And had he lived, he likely would have been serious competition to Shakespeare. Shakespeare's Rosalind 
quotes an unfinished Marlowe poem in As You Like It as a particular tribute to Marlowe. And writing plays at the time wasn't considered a literary achievement. It was this sort of common base entertainment for regular people, sort of like these days, if you're a a literary writer and I don't know, you start to write for reality television or something. It wasn't necessarily seen as this great literary um, genre to to be writing for. The works weren't published or publicized usually. And also the playwright himself didn't even own the rights to the play. It belonged to the theater company who had paid the writer. It wasn't a gig that you got into for... Um, having any particular literary fame associated with your name in general. There are still about 600 plays from this era that we still have that remain. So as the theaters got going, each one would be home to a particular troupe of performers. And the actors performed different plays in their repertory. And so they would perform a different show that they knew each night. And they rarely performed the same show twice in a week. And that was because they wanted to keep getting repeat crowds, um, have the same people come back night after night with regularity. And if you kept doing the same show, you wouldn't get that. Interestingly, the costumes, although they were really beautiful, were not specific to the show. They tended to be really beautiful contemporary clothing. They were worn for for all the different plays the company performed. And women didn't perform plays in this time. All the roles were played by either men or young boys. There were some brilliant young boy actors who would play, for example, really deep parts like Gertrude or Ophelia in Hamlet. They were played by young boys. I mean, can you imagine that? It's it's hard for me to imagine Gertrude being played by a 14-year-old boy. And Since theaters were in such proximity to brothels and other unseemly places, as I said, it was considered really bad form for women to be actresses. It just wasn't right. And some women even wore masks to attend the theater so they wouldn't be recognized. And Elizabethan theater officially came to an end in 1642 when, as I said, the Puritans outlawed the theater during the English Civil War. So now for the book recommendation, which is A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, 1599, by James Shapiro. He is a brilliant Shakespearean historian, really interesting books. And I have a link on the site with the show notes for this particular episode. I have links to everything. And remember to enter the historical fiction giveaway on the site at englandcast.com and buy my book. And you can also get in touch on Facebook at facebook.com slash Englandcast or via Twitter at Tesco, T-E-Y-S-K-O, or you can text the listener feedback line at 801-6-TESCO, T-E-Y-S-K-O. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I will be talking to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. <laughs>